0: We're going to study this psalm in three sections under three headings. In verses 1 through 3, we'll see the corruption of all. Verses 4 through 6 announce the coming judgment. And verse 7, in verse 7, we hear the call for salvation. The corruption of all, the coming judgment, and the call for salvation. Those three points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. First, let's consider the corruption of all. Let me just read verses 1 through 3 again. even one. The psalm, you'll notice there, it opens with a single fool proclaiming, there is no God. But then it quickly expands from the declaration of the single fool to an objective declaration concerning the foolishness of all of humanity. We move from the one to the many. And it's not just that one fool is corrupt, it's that all are corrupt. If we're to make any sense of this, I think that we have to come to understand that the fool is generic and representative of all of humanity all in one. We need to understand that this is not a psalm principally about philosophical atheism, but practical atheism. Atheists of, of, of our day are, are shouting from the rooftops that there is no God. But notice where this atheistic declaration is proclaimed. It is in the heart that the fool says, there is no God. Now, now we should get something kind of out of the way here. When the Old Testament, particularly poetry and wisdom literature, like the Psalms, use the word fool, it's not referring to someone who is unintelligent. A fool may be incredibly intelligent. A fool may have a, a great deal of kind of intellectual prowess. A fool, according to the Bible, is simply someone who denies the existence of God. Someone who not only says there is no God, but also says no God. H- have you lived like that this past week? Christian, I-, I mean that to be a question for you to ponder over. This past week, have you pushed God to the side, told him no, and lived your own way? You know, if you've, if you've gossiped or spoken harshly to your spouse or your children... If you've looked down on others, if you've loved money, if you've sinned, you, you have lived as if there is no God. There have been times this past week when we have all lived lives as if we were the rulers of our own lives. There have been times this past week when we have all said our hearts, there, there is no God. And, and off we go to do what we want to do. That's what sin is. We've, we've all played the fool. And you're only fooling yourself if you think you haven't. If this fool is singular, generic, and representative of all of humanity, all in one, and he must be, given the trajectory of this psalm, you almost wonder if David had a particular fool in mind when he wrote this psalm. You know, maybe David had Adam in mind. The one who represented all of humanity at that tree in the garden. Is... Had to be what Adam said in his heart as he ate that fruit from the tree that God had forbidden him to eat. As he took that bitter bite, he said in his heart, there is no God. There aren't really going to be consequences for this. No one will judge me for this. But there were consequences. And that's because God is wholly just and good. And we have all followed in Adam's footsteps singing that same sorrowful song. That's the testimony of the Bible, and that's why there is a progression in this psalm from the fool to the foolish world. We move from the fool to phrases like they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. You see there in verse 3, they have all turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. Not only are we progressing toward plurality in the psalm, but we're also progressing toward perversity, progressing from corrupt as a state to corrupt acts revealed in doing abominable deeds. Sin certainly is a corrupt act, but it also has corrupting effects. Sin, Sin's corrosive effects spread. I mean, we know this in some of our own relationships, don't we? Perhaps in a dialogue where coarse language is used, In response, perhaps we have responded with coarse language. Sin and its impure effects are not easily contained. This doing abominable deeds mentioned there in verse 1 even carries with it the notion of evil affecting the lives of others. The heart that says, there is no God, is willing to harm those made in the image of God. Verse 1 concludes with a pronouncement or an evaluation. There is none who does good. That seems a bit gloomy, doesn't it? None who does good? I wonder if you think that's a bit of an overstatement. I mean, surely there, there must be one person who is not a fool, one who does not say in his heart there is no God, or, or live in corruption and do abominable things. You know, sometimes we, as humans, uh, we, we kind of make these exaggerated claims, we overstate things, and then, then what we'll do is we'll kind of walk them back and qualify them. But that's actually when we need to hear the echo of this psalm. It's not enough for David to say it once. He actually says these things twice. So if you'll notice in verse 1, corruption is mentioned. It's echoed then in verse 3. They have become corrupt. Then there's that phrase, there is none who does good at the end of verse 1. That too is repeated in verse 3. And when David mentions that all have turned aside in verse 3, what he's saying is that everyone is turned away from God. It's about a synonym of saying that they do abominable deeds. Verse 1. David is he's not walking these statements back from verse 1 in verse 3. We we might be tempted to dismiss David's pronouncement of kind of universal depravity on account of the fact that he's just one man. But there are several problems with that, one of which is that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote verse two. What is more, in the in the middle of the statements made, In verse 1 and the echo of verse 3 is verse 2. This verse gives us a divine and cosmic perspective. God is said to to look down from heaven on the children of man. He's looking down on the whole of mankind. He's looking down to see if there are any who understand. And that understanding is not just any understanding. It has connotations of a faith-filled understanding. This becomes clear when you read the phrase... ...who seek after God. You See that phrase there, those who seek after God? Is, it's simply an elucidation, it's an explication of the any who understand. The psalmist is saying, God is looking down from heaven to see if there are any who understand... ...and by that I mean any who are seeking after God. The implied truth, of course, is that God is seeking. But he is not finding. You see, it is never man who seeks after God in the Bible... It is always God and His mercy who seeks after man. Friend, is God seeking after you this morning? What will He find in your heart? William Plummer, a southern Presbyterian preacher, once said, Is not he a fool who thinks he can elude the scrutiny of omniscience? escape the grasp of omnipotence or succeed in setting aside the decisions of inflexible justice. Think think back to your childhood for a moment. We've all experienced this sense of wrongdoing, not escaping the sight of God. Think about it in relationship to your parents, right? You can remember times, I'm sure, when you kind of looked around the room, see if mom and dad are watching, and once you, you think that you're safe, You kind of go about doing the wrong thing. You went ahead and did something you know they would not want you to do, only to discover that your mother was standing suddenly in the doorway after it all. Or perhaps it was your father, you know, who caught you. You you know, when you come out of your room, he asks you, so what were you up to? Nothing. And, you know, when he says, oh, really? You know you're caught. You you know he, he, he knows what has just transpired. They've seen Friends, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man and and nothing escapes his sight. There is not a thing that you or I did this past week that has escaped the eye of God. What the Lord in heaven sees is there is none who does good, not even one. I wonder if you hear in these verses something familiar. Maybe from Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 where we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, it would be nice if this universal depravity were something that was only true of kind of the Old Testament period. But you know where I'm going with this, right? Right? Paul disabuses us of of that notion in Romans chapter 3. If if you were to read Romans chapter 3 this afternoon, you'll find that Paul quotes this psalm. He he quotes this psalm and he he effectively says, look, this was not just a problem for people in the past, but also for people in the present. And when you read Romans 3 later this afternoon, slow down and meditate on verse 23, where Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know deep in our hearts that we're all sinners. We've seen it in the words that we've audibly spoken. The words that we've silently said in our own hearts. We have even seen it in the words and works of others in our world. I wonder, do you take David, do you take Paul and really God's perspective on this world? Do you believe what God's word says here about mankind? Do you believe that mankind is radically depraved and that this perversity is pervasive, touching every human heart? Now, in God's kindness, we are not as bad as we could be, but the biblical doctrine of radical depravity does express that wickedness and sin has reached the very core of everyone's being, everyone's heart. Is that not what we see here in Psalm 14, 1? Now, of course, this does not mean that we should be suspicious of everyone, uh, but it does mean that we recognize that everyone is in need of a divine intervention. Everyone needs a new heart, a heart that no longer says there is no God. It means that if we have been found in Christ, we need to recall that our hearts are still in the process of being renewed. We still need to be changed because far too often our hearts do proclaim there is no God. In humility, we believers need to recognize that we have contributed to the brokenness of this world. We need to pray that God would continue to renew us in the likeness of Jesus Christ. After confessing that corruption has come to all in this world, David turns and reflects on the judgment coming to all evil. Let's turn now and consider our second point, the coming judgment. And as we do, let's read verses 4 to 6 again. The coming judgment. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. David's reflections here seem a little strange at first, don't they? Have they no knowledge? At first glance, that, that question may seem like David is kind of giving fallen humanity the benefit of the doubt. As though fallen humanity is, you know, they're ignorant of God and His righteousness. But David's not actually giving fallen humanity the benefit of the doubt. Rather, he's asking an accusative question. He's impressing upon us the depths of humanity's depravity. These Evildoers do not wish to know God and His ways and follow Him. Of course they know what they are doing. Of course they know that they are working evil. Of course they know that they are preying upon the people of God, devouring, demolishing, and destroying them. They are not acting as those devoid of knowledge concerning truth and righteousness. They are acting as those who are suppressing the knowledge of truth and righteousness. Romans chapter 1 teaches us that humanity, even in its depravity and fallenness, still has a great deal of knowledge about God and His world. It is not saving knowledge, to be sure, but it is an innate knowledge of knowing God and His righteous decree, of of knowing what is right and wrong. So, let me just encourage you to keep one finger here, and turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, turn to the book of Romans. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1 just ever so briefly. Um, if if you're looking for the page number there in the Bible, it's page 939. I would not be surprised if Paul's first three chapters of his letter to the Romans is kind of an exposition of Psalm 14. Um, In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, it comes on the heels of Paul's wonderful declaration that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the power... That overcomes what we're about to read. And Paul will unpack that good news as his letter goes on. But before he unpacks the good news, he he shares some really bad news. And it is essentially what David has been saying in Psalm 14. Romans chapter 1, beginning there in verse 18 to verse 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise. They became fools. And exchanged the glory. Of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal men. And birds and animals. And creeping things. Therefore. God gave them up. In the lusts of their hearts. To impurity. To dishonoring of their bodies. Among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth. About God for a lie. And worshipped. And served. And served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I wonder if you see what Paul is saying here. He's saying that we know the truth about God by virtue of being made in God's image and seeing the created world around us. That does not mean that we can come to saving faith without the gospel, without the preaching of the gospel, without the declaration of the Bible. It simply means that we intuitively know the natural realities of this world by virtue of being made in God's image. The problem is that even though we know the truth, we have suppressed the truth. The, Paul, the point that Paul makes here in Romans 1 is the point that David makes in Psalm fourteen four through a rhetorical question. The rhetorical accusative question in Psalm 14 is have they no knowledge? And the answer is... Of course they do. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 14. That's page 453 in case you pulled your finger out. 453 of the Bible's provided. You know, one of the gifts, one of God's good gifts to us is a conscience. Now, a conscience can be seared and scarred so that it's desensitized and deadened, but it can never be dismissed. You have a conscience, don't you? You know when you've done wrong. You know when you're walking in the wrong direction, walking away from God, and that you need to turn around. You know when you are not heeding the counsel of godly brothers and sisters who care about you and that you're in danger. Listen to your conscience. The the devil would have you suppress it. This is well illustrated in John Bunyan's allegory, The Holy War. The Holy War is a story about the city of Mansoul. I love how transparent Bunyan is. Is the city of Mansoul. Sadly, the evil Diabolos, the devil and his his minions, have conquered the city. But the good news is is that Prince Emmanuel will come to its rescue. He will give his life to win the city of Mansoul back. Early on in this book, Bunyan is, uh, as he's describing Diabolos' measures for conquering the city of Mansoul, he notes... That Diabolos feared Mr. Conscience, who was the recorder of the town, the one who would cry out and share the news that the town needs to hear. Diabolos could not allow Mr. Conscience to work freely among the residents of the city, so so he went on the offensive. Diabolos urged the people of Mansoul to despise and reject whatever Mr. Conscience said. So John Bunyan wrote this, What a liar and deceiver Diabolos was, for every outcry of Mr. Conscience against the sin of mansoul was the voice of God speaking to them. Friend, brothers and sisters, when your conscience cries out against you, listen, hear and heed your conscience. Now, verse 4, you see there. Verse four also makes clear to us that the situation that first gave rise to this psalm was the oppression of the people of God. The the evildoers are said to eat up the psalmists and therefore God's people like bread. Just think about that image for a moment. The evildoers use people made in the image of God for their nourishment, for their satisfaction and their fulfillment. Sadly, we have... Several examples of this in the Old Testament where the wealthy in ancient Israel would exploit the poor for further gain. Perhaps the the words of the prophet Amos come to your mind. Amos chapter 4 verse 1. Hear this word you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria who oppress the poor who crush the needy who say to your husbands bring that we may drink. But Amos is condemning there, he's condemning the lavish lifestyle of the, the rich and famous women of the northern kingdom of Israel who were crushing the poor and needy. Sadly, exploitation That's what we're looking at here. Sadly, exploitation has continued down through the ages, and destructive forms of exploitation still take place in our day. We all know this to be true, don't we? I mean I want to be careful here because I think that we can be easily misled. With, with some of the forms of exploitation that we've been seeing of late, as in the past few weeks, the last week, the past few weeks, the past few months, where men in the media and politics and elsewhere have been exposed for preying upon women, you know, often the blame for these predatory actions has sometimes, I think, been misplaced. There has been... A call for accountability for men in positions of power and prominence. As if power and prominence is the root of the problem. Some have suggested that what we've been seeing is an abominable display of Lord Acton's famous dictum. All power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what the Bible tells us is that's absolutely false. It's not that power corrupts, it's that the human heart is corrupt, Psalm 14.1. And so we use the instrument of power to prey upon others, Psalm 14.4. We are sinners, we are corrupt, and when we live in rebellion against God, we will use whatever instruments we can to further our rebellion. The problem is not power, the problem is us. Our world is riddled with exploitation of various forms. Prostitution and pornography are pernicious ways in which people today use and exploit image bearers for their personal satisfaction. Aberrant forms of sexuality are yet another form of exploitation and oppression. One form of oppression that we, as a moderately wealthy congregation, must be on guard against is failing to pay a worker a just wage. We should be concerned not to eat up other people as bread, but make sure that they can eat bread and feed their families bread. We should prefer to be taken advantage of over using people made in the image of God for our satisfaction and enrichment. Christian, whatever contracts and agreements you enter into, be sure to pay a worker a just wage. Remember the warning of James chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. James writes, Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Christian, brothers and sisters, we should be known not as people who are greedy, but who are generous. We should be known not as those who hoard, but as those who help. Our God did not withhold His Son from us. We should be careful In our interactions with others, careful not to use others, careful to remember that they bear the image of God, whom we call Lord. Just as James 5 contained a warning of judgment, so does Psalm 14. The evildoers of Psalm 14 neither know God nor call upon Him, verse 4. They do not pursue the one true God for an intimate, loving, and humble relationship with Him, nor do they pursue Him for mercy. And so they will face his judgment. That's the burden of verse 5. It's the burden that that verse carries. Out of nowhere, terror strikes. And the terror in view must be the terrifying judgment of God. It's as if David is reflecting on what he knows about the future and seeing those who are presently free from terror suddenly terrorized by God's wrath. This way of reflecting on the coming judgment also highlights the suddenness of God's judgment. One moment the evildoers are free from terror and the next moment their lives are full of terror and judgment. They're, the evildoers were going about their lives, terrorizing others. They were carefree, but suddenly there they are in terror. Because the terror of God has overtaken them. The New Testament depicts the wrath of God is coming suddenly too. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses and 3 Paul writes for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape the judgment promised here in Psalm 14 and confirmed through the teaching of the rest of the Bible is certain and it will be swift and sudden those who do not come to know God and worship His Son will face this judgment. Why? Why will terror one day come upon them? It's right there in the text. Because God is with the generation of the righteous. In other words, because God is with His people. Now that, that might seem to be kind of a, a non-sequitur for you. But I trust that you'll see as this psalm reaches its conclusion why that statement makes, really makes perfect sense. God may appear to be absent from his people, but he is ever present with them. God will ultimately vindicate his people. He will ultimately redeem and save them. No matter what the wicked may do to the people of God in this life, they can never separate the believer from the love of God. We know that from Romans 8, don't we? God is determined never to let his people go. And he is for his people. If he is with us and for us, then who can be? Against us. The evildoer would try to shame the plans of the poor, verse 6, but they will not succeed. Here we should remember the words of Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first characteristic of citizens of the kingdom of heaven, being poor in spirit is the first mark of the people of God according to Jesus in that sermon. And according to Psalm 14, this is the kind of person who makes the Lord his refuge. Why? Because the poor in spirit recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt. Let me ask you this. What resources do spiritually bankrupt people have to give to God and so receive his blessing in return? Nothing. The kind of people who are blessed by God are not people who have earned God's favor. They are not people who think that they have something that God needs. But people who know that they need God. Who know that they need to take refuge in Him to be saved by Him. This is the fundamental character of the subjects of the king. They know they need God. They know they're poor. And those who truly know their need of God can also know that they will enter the kingdom of heaven. They are blessed, and an eternal blessing yet awaits them. The evildoer would try to shame the plans of the poor, verse 6, but in the end, shame will be heaped upon their own heads because they trusted in themselves as if and lived as if there is no God. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you may not be living in terror today. But if you continue on in rebellion against the God who made you and gave you life and breath, then one day you will face the terror of his wrath. So, what should you do? You should do what David does next in this psalm you should call out to God for salvation. Let's turn and think about this more carefully. So, having recognized the evil so pervasive in humanity and having reflected on the coming judgment, let's turn now and consider our third and final point, the call for salvation. And as we do, let's begin by reading verse 7. Let's read verse 7 of Psalm 14. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. What the people who first sang this song needed was deliverance from their enemies. And so they asked for salvation to come out of Zion. In the Old Testament, Zion, it referred to, often referred to Jerusalem. But as, as the revelation of God progressed over time, Zion, particularly in the prophets, also came to have heavenly connotations. Zion would become the place from which God would consummate His worldwide purposes of salvation and judgment. I wonder if you see the connection between verse 7 and verses 5 and 6. Do you see the connection between judgment and salvation? Really, judgment and salvation are opposite sides of the same reality. Much like one side of a coin has heads and one side has tails, it's still the same coin. For God to judge his enemies would be for God to save his people. that is because God is with and for His people. Verse 5. This request for salvation is a request for judgment. When God comes to judge His enemies, He will simultaneously save His people and restore their fortunes. And all of this should lead to the joy and gladness of His people. Notice carefully how the second sentence of verse 7 begins. You see that word when. It's not a matter of if. It is only a matter of when. The Lord is committed to His people. He's committed to His promises. He's committed to His saving purposes. Still, in making this request, this psalm has introduced a conundrum that really only the whole storyline of the Bible can resolve. Haven't we been told in this psalm that that all of humanity is full of evil? Haven't we been told that there's none who does good? I believe we have. And not just once, but twice. We're told that in verses 1 and verse 3. And since all of humanity has been judged as being full of evil, all of humanity, therefore is worthy of facing God's justice, terror, and wrath. This request in verse 7, then, must not merely be a request from God's people to deliver them from their earthly enemy, but also, in light of the whole storyline of the Bible, this must also be a request for deliverance from their divine enemy. Is that really much different than what we need today? I don't know about you, But this psalm concludes in a most appropriate way. By leading us to make the request for us to escape the terror of God. We need to pray and ask God to come from heaven and save us. And the good news of the Bible is that he did come from Zion. And he will come again. The Bible teaches that the righteous Lord of heaven came to earth. As we sang earlier, thou who art God beyond all praising all for love's sake becamest man, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. You see, salvation did come from Zion. The eternal Son of God became man by taking to Himself a true human body and soul. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of her yet without sin. You see, His name was Jesus. And He lived the perfectly righteous life that we have not. Every thought, every word, every deed was a righteous deed. And that's the kind of righteousness that God's law required. His righteous Father, God in heaven, loved every single one of those righteous deeds. God the Father even told us this when He looked down from heaven upon the children of man and He said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I I love His life. I love that He came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was perfectly righteous Perfectly sinless and yet he gave up his life on the cross to pay our debt. Our corruption, our sin, our abominable deeds incurred a debt that had to be punished and paid. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, the payment that's due to sin is death. And that is what Jesus did, taking the punishment that our sins deserve. Jesus gave his Life up so that we might be delivered from God's terrifying wrath. See, because Jesus took the Father's wrath, Jesus drank the terrifying cup of God's wrath for our sin until there was nothing left in that cup for us. So you see, on, on the cross, there is this most marvelous exchange. Jesus took upon himself our unrighteousness, our guilt, our sin, our shame. And three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us that he really is righteous. And that he loved every one of his righteous deeds of his son. His resurrection from that tomb in Jerusalem, in Zion, proves to us that he was the start of the new humanity. He was the second Adam. And in order to be counted among the the new humanity, in order to come out from under God's wrath and be saved, we must take refuge in the Lord Jesus. We must place our faith in Him, the one who never sinned, never committed abominable deeds, never played the fool. He is the only one who was always righteous. The only one who always did what was good. He was the only one who always and only sought after God. When we believe that Jesus lived for us, the righteous life that we have not lived, that He died for us, bearing the wrath of God for our sin, that He was raised from the grave in a triumphant vindication of righteousness, we receive all of His righteous deeds as our own. In faith, we hide ourselves in Him and so receive the salvation that came out of Zion some 2,000 years ago. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you turn from your foolishness, your wickedness and your sin and come to him in faith today. Take refuge in Jesus today and on the last day you will behold the gracious face of the righteous Lord because you see he is coming out of Zion again. Jesus will return and when he comes again, he will return In judgment, this is what he said he would do. In John chapter 5, verses 26 to 29, Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, He will come out of Zion again. Jesus will come again. And rather than terrify you for your wickedness, He will smile upon you and be glorified by the testimony of your faith. God is honored and glorified by the faith of those who take refuge in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you want to think and talk more about this, about what it means to take refuge in Jesus Christ, please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd I'd love to talk with you about that. Or, Or speak with a family member or friend that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about than this good news of taking refuge in Jesus and salvation. Him coming for you when He comes on the last day. And as we conclude, I want us to reflect upon the truth that when salvation comes and until that salvation comes, believers in Jesus Christ should rejoice and be glad. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has restored us and is restoring us. He has restored the fortunes that Adam forfeited in the fall. And he has restored them in a far more glorious manner. All because of Jesus, we will live in the glorious eternal garden of the new heavens and the new earth. And unlike that first garden, the coming heavenly garden cannot be lost. So let us rejoice and be glad. Let us rejoice and be glad because our God has rescued us from this present evil age. Let us rejoice and be glad that in Christ our sins have been forgiven. This is the good news of Christmas. Let us rejoice and be glad that salvation, Jesus, has come. And let us rejoice and be glad that he will come again for us. Let us join with David and the saints of old in longing for that final day to come and this this meal before us is an expression of that longing an expression of our faith that we believe he's coming again and so we're going to keep eating until he comes let us cry out in prayer each day with faith and hope oh that salvation would come out of Zion would you join me in prayer